What comes next for the FFA Cup? When can Australian football expect a national second division? Can it ever dream of promotion and relegation? What lies ahead for Australia's junior and senior national teams in the next 12 months? And what sort of legacy can we expect the 2023 Women's World Cup across Australia and New Zealand to leave once it's all done? I'm your host, Joey Lynch, and this is Beyond the Lead with Football Australia CEO, James Johnson. Football, or soccer if you are of that ilk, has long styled itself as the sleeping giant of Australian sport, and the coming months and years are shaping as its next significant attempt to usurp the nation's existing sporting order. One of the biggest events on the planet, the Women's World Cup, is set to hit Australia and New Zealand in 2023, and the Socceroos are knee-deep in their quest to appear at a fifth straight Men's World Cup in Qatar in 2022. The much-loved FFA Cup has made a return this year after being forced to go into COVID-enforced mothballs and it's soon to be launched with a new name. Further, the A-Legs have undergone their own reformation in the wake of their independence ahead of their now-commenced 2021-22 season. There is also the potential introduction of one of the most sought-after reforms in the Australian game, a national second tier. With so much on the horizon... Football Australia CEO James Johnson sat down for an exclusive one-on-one with myself to break down what lies ahead of the world game down under. FFA Cup, it's been a bit, it's been a bit interrupted as of late because of COVID, but it's a much beloved competition. Now that Football Australia, it is the major property of Football Australia, what does that competition's future look like? Looks very bright, uh, and it's matches like this, which, which is what the FFA Cup is is all about. We've got uh, South Melbourne, who are arguably the most um, uh, successful team in the history of our code, playing our our current champions in in Melbourne City. So it's going to be a great fixture, and this is what this cup is all about. Um, We have to keep articulating um, our vision for this cup. Uh, We want the cup to, to be competitive, and by competitive, we mean every match needs to be meaningful. You win. You, you, you proceed, you lose, you're out. It's cutthroat, it's a great competition. Where we're going going forward is we want to see it played on weekends more often. We've been challenged this year because of COVID and we wanted to finish uh, the, the, the competition, so we've had to push it back, um, which means that the weekend uh, matches probably won't be seen uh, much until the next edition of it. You will see a name change that we will announce uh, in the lead-up to this year's FFA Cup Final, and I think we'd also like to evolve the competition so that we have a, a, a women's compartment of it as well. Um, that's where we'd like to take this competition going forward in, in the coming years. Can you give us a hint about the name? We're still working through that. It's, it's going to be something that I think football and the football people in Australia will really like. That would be my hint, Joey. And you, well, you talked about um, all the stuff that you want to do to improve it as a competition, but the footballing public clearly loves the magic of the cup, as it were, and what it represents um, in terms of community clubs versus NPL clubs versus A-League clubs. But how do you take that magic and get buy-in from the non-footballing public? How do you get you know, your average punter to fall in love with the plumber that works on their house during the week 
facing off against professional footballers on the weekend? You have to differentiate the product. And, and I think what is different about the FFA Cup to the A-League or to other um, sporting competitions in Australia, like the AFL and the NRL, is you, you, you have a competition where clubs all over the country, whether they're grassroots or at the top of the pyramids at the elite level, they're playing against each other. That's different. The other thing that I like um, about the FA Cup and something that we've brought in from a strategic point of view is we've now given it a uh, qualification spot into Asia. So effectively what that means is that clubs all over the country at all different levels can not only win a competition at national level, but they can also go on and compete at the Asian level. And that's different to other sporting competitions in Australia. This year we've seen it played in a bit of a conference system because of the travel restrictions. Is that a one and done or is that something that will return during non-COVID effective conference? This, this is something that we've, we, we've had to bring in um, for COVID, but a benefit of doing that is you see more local derbies and local derbies in football is, is very exciting. Matches like South Melbourne versus Melbourne City or Sydney Olympic versus Sydney FC um, are what you're going to see more of if we play in this conference style. Um, it's not off the table in the future, but it's, it's not something that we're, we're wedded to either. Um, what I would like to see uh, from a strategic point is this competition needs to be open. It needs to be based on sporting merits. I'd like to see draws uh, every round, um, and the luck of the draw can, can help teams proceed through this magnificent competition. On the subject of sporting merit, there are a few um, clashes that happen in the FFA Cup. I mean, the most obvious one is the divergent calendars. So you get, at the beginning of the competition, NPL sides in mid-season, A-League sides in pre-season. Then by the end of it, NPL sides have been out of season for several months and A-League sides are in the midst of their seasons. And then you also have stuff like uh, different visa limits for state league clubs versus NPL clubs versus A-League clubs. How do you go about addressing some of those issues in future competitions? So there's, there's two parts to that question. One is calendar, the other is, is, is regulation. Uh, in, in a normal year now, we do have a domestic match calendar, so there is a space um, in the domestic match calendar where the FFA Cup will be played. And the FFA Cup will be the last game of the football season, and it will be in, in the weeks leading up to the kickoff of the A-League. And that's what the calendar will look like uh, in a, in a non-COVID uh, year. In terms of the regulations, this is something that we've got to work on. Uh, at the moment, you do have two different sets of regulations that apply to two different competitions. And what we need to do is we need to increase the competitiveness um, of the teams that participate in the FFA Cup, and that's going to mean that we're going to have to have uniform rules that apply uh, across the country, and that's something that uh, I'm very aware of and something I think you'll see in, in, in years to come. In terms of strengthening those clubs taking part, in the FFA Cup. How we're coming out of COVID, it's been a very difficult time for community clubs and NPL clubs um, in the non-professional sphere. What sort of plans does Football Australia have to work with member federations to support the health and the growth of um, NPL and community clubs as we exit this COVID period? So we're bringing in a club licensing system. And if we go back to our vision, the, uh, the 11 principles, um, the 15-year vision for the game. Club licensing is a really key component. It's not about regulating. It's not about disqualifying clubs. It's actually about providing a strategic platform um, and a strategic way forward for clubs to develop in all the key areas, whether it be on the football side or the administrative side or the financial side. That's what the future club li licensing system is going to look like. And what I can say um, uh, when I talk about club licensing if we look at how it's been applied in other parts of the world, it really is a development tool. 
and it's one that we think will help clubs, particularly outside the A-League, grow. Uh, and we hope through the club licensing system that in years to come we'll see the gap close between the A-League and the non-A-League clubs. Well, when, well, you do talk about NPL clubs and closing the gap between those things. The 50-foot elephant in the room is the national second tier, which always comes up in these conversations. In May, Chris Nickyu, um, chairman of Football Australia, told the Melbourne Knights function that he hoped some sort of model was going to be brought to the Football Australia board by the end of the year. Is that still happening? Has COVID forced a delay in that plans? What's the current time frame surrounding a national second tier? So second tier is, is, is on the table. We said it will happen and it, it will happen. Has it been delayed? Of course it has. There's been a lot of things that have been delayed um, through COVID, but we've done a lot of work on it now. We, we've spoke to clubs uh, both in the A-League and also outside of the A-League. We've spoken with the AAFC. We've spoken with our member federations and we're really at a point now where we're crunching numbers and we're looking at two different models that, that could evolve uh, into a second tier. But there will be one. It's just a matter of which model we choose. Could you elaborate maybe on that? What sort of, so it's, you've narrowed it down to two. Um, what models is Football Australia looking at for a national second tier? So one is your traditional home and away um, league season, like you see in, in many leagues around the world. This one is going to be a more expensive um, competition, and it's one that's going to cost more particularly for the clubs that would participate. The other is is something more along the lines of a conference-style um, system where you might play um, a conference in one part of the country in a, another country, another conference in another part of um, the country, and then you'd come together for a group of playoffs. That's something else we're looking at as well. Um, so there's two concepts on the table, and at some point we've got to choose one. In terms of those two models, as you said, the first one more expensive, but probably would be more appealing to uh, proponents of a national second tier in the NPL level. The second one, conferences, um, more affordable to begin with. How do you find that trade-off between something that will appeal, probably arguably better for development, so full home and away season versus affordability? What are the what are the trade-offs involved in that? Um, look, I think I think both can develop. Um, sorry, I think both can deliver football outcomes. Uh, football outcomes are ensuring that we're playing more, ensuring that young players in particular get more time on the pitches, uh, ensuring that referees get more time to, 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 to referee at that level, and for coaches and also administrators to, to have a national level competition where they can uh, get more experience. So it will either way deliver um, football outcomes. Where we need to really drill down on is what is practical. And sure, if we can have a home and away, I think like any football fan, that is a more favourable model. But ultimately, we've got to talk to the clubs about it and we've got to find um, a model that, that, that not only football in Australia and Football Australia can afford, but also the clubs can too. And once you put dollars and cents on the table, um, you'll often find that not only FA has a view on that, but also the clubs that would participate would too. Sounds like you've got two models now that you're tossing up on. One of the timeframes involved is 2023 has been thrown around as a possible start date. Is that still on the table? Is yeah. that the goal? Yeah, it would be, it'd be a great year to start, right? 2023 <laughs> is, is really lining up to be a, a really memorable year for the sport. We've got the Women's World Cup in uh, 2023. We'll have... Um, uh, 2022 will be a, a year for the, for the World Cup. So it'll be a good lead into 23. Um, would it be 23? I would love to see that. Be the case. Another big thing around the second tier is the place of both 
A-League youth sides has been floated as potential entrants to this competition and also maybe new entrants in uh, unserved markets, as they've been called, places that don't have an A-League side. What's the current status on those sort of discussions surrounding their entrance into these competitions? We're not, we're not into those discussions at the moment. We're literally looking at uh, what the model could look like, what the number of matches would be, what the competition format is, and what the governance structure um, would look like, and also where in the calendar this competition would, 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 would sit. So we've got to settle on those items first. We've got to decide on the model, and then I think we're going to have a conversation on what sort of teams um, could participate in that model. All of these moves that we're talking about, the growth of the FFA Cup, growth of the NPL and member federations, growth, uh, potential growth of a national second tier, they're taking place outside the newly independent A-Leagues now. It's the APL running that and doing their own sort of thing. Do you think there's a danger that the professional level could become even more siloed as we see Football Australia go in one direction, the APL go in another? Well, it's definitely not siloed. Um because that's not the way it's been set up. So the way that the APL is set up is it's a, it's a, it's a legal entity that, that is owned primarily by the clubs themselves. Um, and the role of the APL is to, one, run the competition, to operate it, to run the event week in, week out. Uh, and secondly, they own the commercial rights that are associated with the competition as well, uh, being the A-League men's, A-League women's, and also the, the youth competition uh, for both. The role of Football Australia is to sit over the top of the league and to govern it um, and to regulate it. Um, so th I, I don't see for a moment the league and FA going different directions um, because uh, effectively we're all part of the same sport and we all have a role to play uh, within the league. I guess all part of the same sport but you know, another elephant in the room is that Member federations clubs currently have no way of winning their way into the A-Leagues via Sporting Merit. I mean, you talked about a member federation club can potentially win the FFA Cup and represent Australia in Asia, but they're not able to enter the highest domestic competition at, as it currently stands. Do you ever foresee a time when promotion and relegation will be viable in Australia? Yeah, of course. One day it does need to be viable in Australia. Uh, what's been agreed between FA and the clubs as part of um, the unbundling agreement that's been done is that there would be a conversation around access to the competition. And access looks different in different parts of the world. Of course, if we go into Western Europe, um, it is promotion relegation. But if you go into the Americas or you go into parts of Asia, access does look a little bit different. Um, but ultimately, it's a conversation that we've agreed to having. It's one that we've not had yet, but it's something we need to talk about with the APL uh, going forward. Do the current uh, A-League sides licences prevent relegation from the A-Leagues? That's been a topic that's come up a lot. Is that the case? No, no, it doesn't. So that's right. The, what we've got to remember is that we play in a global system, and the global system is regulated by FIFA. Um, and one of the principles is sporting merit, and that needs to be uh, seen throughout the world at the appropriate time, and you can't contract out of that. Another one of the major features of this global system that we exist in is transfers. I know that's something that you've taken a keen interest in in your time at Football Australia, bringing in a domestic transfer system, a DTS. What's the, what's the current status of that? So there's different elements of a transfer system. The one that's been implemented so far are transfer windows. So something that we have brought in through the domestic match calendar um, are transfer windows. At, at, in, in the past, they've been uh, scattered over, 
over the, the, the calendar year. What you have in place now is you have one four-week window and one 12-week window. Um, that's how you put the, 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 the peg in the ground, so to speak, for a transfer system. Um, we're still in, in, in conversations with the NPL clubs and also the A-League clubs about the other elements of a transfer system, transfer fees, loans, squad size, rules, so on and so forth. And that's all included um, in the white paper that we developed earlier this year. So it's, it's there for the reading. That's our plan. Another stakeholder involved in these discussions, the Players Union, the PFA, they have previously raised concerns around introducing a transfer system whilst a salary cap remained in place in the A-Leagues. Have you had continuing conversations with the players' union surrounding their concerns? We haven't had uh, discussions uh, in, in recent times, but of course before we would introduce um, certain elements of a transfer system, there would be conversations with the players' union. Uh, this is quite normal in, in, in football. At the FIFA level, you're talking to FIFPRO about it. So it's not something we would uh, introduce unilaterally. It's a conversation that we'd have with the players, and, and, and I think... Um, they have agreed to it at the global level, so I don't see why it would be an issue here at, at the domestic level. And the next 12 months also is a big one. You've mentioned 2022 is a World Cup year, so ostensibly we'd all be hoping that the Socceroos have, will be playing in that at the end of the year, but prior to that, the 11 months prior to Qatar, what does that, that look like for all of Australia's national teams? I think it looks very exciting, Joey. Uh, if, if we think about where we'll be in November... 2022 uh, I think we will be at the World Cup um, and I think what we will have seen in the year 2022 is certainly a lot of great content both for the Socceroos and the Matildas on the Socceroos side we're going to have three great home matches um, sorry two more home matches one in January one in March uh, there is a window in, in June we'll either be playing in more qualifiers if we don't qualify uh, directly um, through the third round qualifiers. If, if, if we have a friendly window in June, we will be bringing some big name teams out to Australia. We are in discussions. We do want to play in New Zealand uh, to commemorate the Socceroos' 100-year history in, in, in 2022 and then obviously the Qatar World Cup at the back end of the year. Then we've got the Matildas. The Matildas are in the lead-up uh, to 2023 um, and we do have plans to bring the Matildas back on more than a couple occasions in, in 23 as well. So there's going to be lots of national team content in 22. It really will be a year for the national teams, and I think the Socceroos in particular, because they'll turn 100. Um, in terms of the national teams, junior national teams as well, they've spent better, better part of two years mothball. We recently saw the Oliroos qualify for the ASC Under-23 Championship, beating Indonesia in a two-game playoff. But are there plans to bring back our junior national teams as well? There, there, there are, but this is more an issue for FIFA and, and for AFC. What we know for certain is that our under-23 team will be playing next year in the AFC under-23 uh, championships. So right now our focus is on appointing uh, an Oliroos coach. Our Oliroos coach would take the team through to Paris in 2024, but that's really our focus at the moment. And as soon as the 17s and 20s are ready to go, um, they'll be back on the pitch Australia missed out on the chance to host a couple of uh, junior girls uh, mm. qualifying tournaments because of COVID. Would it be your hope that we can bring those back to Australia once the AFC organises them again? Yeah, absolutely. As part of our, uh, as part of the vision of the new administration, we want to bring more global content, more national team content, back to our local communities. That was a, a missed opportunity, I think, but I think we'll see more of these opportunities going forward. 
and we touched on it before, but the Socceroos World Cup qualification is such a big deal to Australian football. We've been four straight now and we've seen the boost that it has given the game. Just how much would change in Australian football and from Football Australia's own prognosis if the Socceroos didn't qualify for a World Cup? I don't want to think about that because I think we will. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm, I'm looking at this as if we will qualify, and I think we will qualify. It'll be the fifth consecutive World, World Cup that we've qualified for. And importantly, Joey, it will mean that nearly a quarter of our history, of the Socceroos, our 100-year history, will be World Cup football. Um, I'm not doubting that we're, uh, that, that we're not going to Qatar. We will be there. You're talking about playing New Zealand for the 100-year anniversary. It's got my mind thinking there has been talk about other possible symbolic series we could say. I know it's been mentioned maybe South Sudan, given the heavy Australian contingent in the South Sudanese squad, games against Oceania opposition. Is there scope for these more sort of symbolic to, um, series to take place in the next few years? Yeah, yeah. Look, I, the starting point is going to be New Zealand. Mm. Um, we've, we've won a World Cup and we'll host a World Cup with New Zealand. We have a great geopolitical history with New Zealand. We have a great football history with New Zealand. Anytime we sit down and we think about what sort of national team matches we should be playing, um, we've got to ensure that they're as meaningful as possible. So I think you'll see uh, more of these types of matches going forward, but certainly there will be a game against New Zealand next year to commemorate the 100 years history of the Socceroos. And international football, we can't not touch on that. The shining beacon on the hill, the 2023 women's World Cup coming out to Australia. Uh, it's a, obviously a big deal for football, but also Australian football's relationship with the broader government, community, the people getting us out there. What sort of tangible improvements are you seeing with government relations and facility funding already as a result of the World Cup coming out here? We, we've got a lot of government support, uh, both at the federal level and also the state level um, for our national teams at the moment. Certainly the Women's World Cup has helped that. We have a legacy plan um, that we've, we've published. Uh, we've got a lot of funding from, from the federal government for the high performance uh, element of the Matildas. What that means on the ground is that we're, we are able to play the Brazilians in a double header. We are able to play the United States um, in a double header. We have been able to play Germany and the Netherlands and Japan, all top teams. Uh, so this funding is really important. There are other asks that we are asking the government. We're having great discussions with them at the moment. We think that through the Women's World Cup, we can create a real legacy, legacy in terms of participation, um, providing opportunities for women in, in, in leadership positions and also for the infrastructure because we will see an increase in participation due to the brand, the strong brand of the Matildas and also the Women's World Cup. But we need facilities um, to be able to... to allow the growth of the participants. Is there a level of urgency to lock in these commitments before the 2023 World Cup actually comes to town and in, in potentially afterwards governments, the next big thing comes along and it gets distracted? How much urgency is it to get this done before the actual tournament commences? Yeah, well, legacy by definition happens after something, right? Like that's what legacy means. Uh, that's why- lock in, lock in the commitments, so to speak. Yeah, correct. But, yeah. but that's why we started the discussion around legacy earlier this year because we didn't want to start the conversation after the World Cup had finished. Mm. Um, so I think we're very much ahead of, of where we need to be. Uh, legacy is something we're going to be talking about in the lead up to the Women's World Cup in 23 and certainly two or three years um, after that. So I think we're in a good space at the moment. Mm. Because 
have you taken any lessons from the previous major tournament Australia held, the Asian Cup? It was a great tournament when it was on, but one of the biggest complaints from the football community in its aftermath was that it's difficult to tell actually what lasting legacy it was. What lessons have you learned from that? Um, I like to learn lessons from other parts of the world. We work in football. It's a global sport, and we've got uh, 211 countries that we can learn from. If we look at the United States Men's World Cup in 1994, there was brilliant legacy left for the United States. If we look at the Women's World Cup uh, in Canada in 2015, it left a great legacy for the country. These are the kind of examples that we have um, been looking to, and these are the sort of examples that we'd like to see brought to life here in Australia. Another potential legacy for both the men's and the women's game would be, I guess, the Indigenous recognition that is occurring with the World Cup. We've seen it's been incorporated into the branding, the place names of the stadiums in both the native Indigenous language and... English, um, we've seen artists brought in to help design on that front and Football Australia just, just this week launched their own uh, advisory body for Indigenous Australians. Just what sort of legacy for Indigenous Australians are you hoping to leave? Not just from the Women's World Cup but in general over the next few years. So the, the starting point is, is setting up an advisory group and we have a great group of, uh, of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island people that will now advise Football Australia in a meaningful way. In a meaningful way, uh, it is uh, chaired by Jade North, who is a great Australian, great Indigenous Australian. Uh, he's co he's captained the Socceroos, um, and he'll be chairing this independently, certainly of myself and the board. They will act as advisors. It will be a meaningful group, meaning that their advice will be listened to. That's a starting point. Um, we do have plans to 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 put in place. Um, a wrap, but ultimately, in terms of the vision, we would like to see more Indigenous children, both girls and boys, playing the sport. We'd like to see more uh, girls and boys uh, in our elite programs playing in the A League men's and women's. And we'd also like to see more Indigenous people that are coaching, refereeing, and in, in, in administrative positions. So, this is the reason we've established this group. James Johnson, I know you're a very busy man, so I won't keep you any longer, but thank you very much for giving us an insight into what's ahead for Australian football and Football Australia, and thank you very much for joining us on ESPN. You're welcome, Joey. Thank you. Obviously, time will tell for a lot of the reforms and projects being mooted by Johnson and his organisation. Changes which will also take place against an increasingly shifting global game backdrop, where biennial World Cups, Super Clubs... Sports washing and more are becoming increasingly thorny issues. Of course, you'll be able to keep abreast of everything going on on the domestic front on ESPN.com.au through the work of myself, Steph Brantz, Ante Jukic and Marissa Lordanik, and around the world through the prestigious team of journalists on hand at the Worldwide Leader. And speaking of cheap plugs, I'd like to thank you for joining us on another edition of ESPN's Beyond the Lead. It's time for a discussion between myself and Football Australia's CEO, James Johnson. I've been your host, Joey Lynch, and don't forget that beyond this chat, you can find every other episode of Beyond the Lead. You can also find ESPN Specialty Women's Football Podcast, The Far Post, and you can also find each and every other episode of all of ESPN's audio offerings, wherever you happen to get your potties from. If you're enjoying Beyond the Lead, or any of those other pods, make sure you subscribe, Give us one of those famous five-star reviews and let somebody know that you're enjoying it. Sharing, after all, is caring. But anyways, thanks for tuning in today, tomorrow, 
or whenever you happen to be catching this. And I'll catch you soon for another deep dive into sports as ESPN takes you a beyond the lead very soon.